Welcome and thank you for joining the Society for Clinical Research Sites for SCRS Talks. I'm Jimmy Bechtel, the Vice President of Site Engagement with the Society. SCRS Talks is a program that allows our partners and those that we work closely with to take a few minutes to address issues of industry concern, share exciting achievements, and learn about our amazing community. We know that site financial burden and contractual literacy often go hand in hand. A significant amount of time goes into drafting and signing clinical trial agreements or, or CTAs, but many aspects of those CTAs can be overlooked by sites due to their length and complexity. In the industry, we're currently seeing really an unprecedented rise of sites facing financial burden due to increasing costs of staffing and supplies. Now more than ever, it's critical that sites learn what actions they can take to assure that they understand what they're agreeing to and what flexibility they have when it comes to negotiating CTAs. Today, we're lucky to have Dr. Daniel Fox with us. Dr. Fox is the Director of Clinical Research at a large multi-specialty research network and the CEO of the Clinical Research Payment Network. Um, thank you for being here, Dr. Fox. And if you wouldn't mind, just a brief introduction of yourself and, and some of your background. Absolutely, and thank you for having me here, Jimmy. I'm Dr. Daniel Fox. I'm the Director of Clinical Research at a large multi-specialty network, as Jimmy had said. I'm also the CEO of the Clinical Research Payment Network. In my heart, I am a translational scientist, so I'm very dedicated to bench-to-bedside research. I've had um, almost a decade of experience in academia and academic research in the lab. I moved up through my postdoc auditing military sites. I went on into uh, industry uh, first at small biotech, and then I went into global pharmaceutical manufacturing. And here I am back at the clinical site network, helping our patients and helping our physicians to perform clinical research according to all of the rules, laws, and regulations. So I have a pretty good diverse background in everything that I do. And as a result, I have a good understanding not only of the law behind what we're doing, but also behind the regulations behind how we should be doing them. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Fox. Um, and before we dive into this topic, I want to make sure that everyone knows that this is not meant to be legal advice, and SCRS encourages those that are listening and our site partners to consult their legal teams before implementing any changes to their contracts. So let's get started um, with, our, with our discussion, Dr. Fox. A critical part of contractual literacy is awareness of what is actually in our contracts. So how can sites assure that the appropriate people read those contracts and understand the promises that are made within them? That's a really good question, Jimmy. And I do believe that we should really start at the beginning here. Uh, just very briefly, let's talk about this. So sites are approached with trials and opportunities. And as a result, they negotiate contracts and they establish mutual agreements with sponsors and CROs and then they start the trial process. Well, that's not necessarily how it works in the industry. Um, almost every single time it works out just like this. My regulatory team, they get the award letter. Congratulations, regulatory team. Congratulations, uh, site. We are here. Uh, you have the trial. You have the award. Please fill out the 1572. Get us the financial disclosure forms and get us the CVs, and we'll get started right away. And then all of a sudden, my regulatory team has to stop and say, whoa, 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 where's the contract? Where's the budget? So in the very beginning, when you start the entire clinical trial process, we've already started wrong. 
because now we are actually, as a site, performing regulatory services. We're getting requested to perform regulatory services before any ink is on any legal do document. So as a result, I think it's really important on a contractual literacy note to work first internally with your site, with your groups, your regulatory team, your finance team. Everyone has to come together and they have to realize that a legal agreement really is not just for the lawyers. It's not some kind of a legal formality that we have to just get out of the way to do the important work. I think it's really important on an industry standard that we as sites have to stand up and say, well, we really need legal agreements in place, ink dried. We need to have a mutual agreement between parties before we perform any kind of clinical operations or regulatory service. You can, of course, offer, you know, make sure the contracts are available for review. You can have sessions so that you can educate your team and make sure that they know what promises are made and how to do it. You can do all of these different things. You can even formalize it with signature pages. However, if the team doesn't know that it's their job, if they think that legal is siloed in some kind of a way where you know, we just have to make sure the lawyers are happy and then we can do our work. If they don't hold accountability and responsibility exactly for what the legal part is, then we're never going to get anywhere. And on an industry level, unfortunately, I'm not sure why it's happening this way, but that's almost, you know, that's the most common thing that happens. I learn about the majority of my legal processes through my regulatory team. Uh, where it really should go the other way around. You should have, uh, you should tell your regulatory team when you're ready to perform services. So start internally with your site, make sure everyone is just aware that the legal part comes first, and then start to work on the industry. If we can set a standard at the site level, perhaps the industry can start to catch up. That's an interesting point, Dr. Fox, about making sure that a right everyone is knowledgeable and and educated at the site level to to perform this task and what the appropriate order of operations really needs to be for these clinical trials, right? Because it thinking from the sponsor and industry side of things, they're trying to get things done as quickly as possible. So I I I uh, don't agree with right to your point, but understand while they're trying to uh, almost jump the gun with uh, with what we're doing as far as executing the trial before um, uh, a clinical trial agreement or a budget um, is even in place. So that's an interesting point and one to uh, to make sure that our listeners also recognize right for their teams. And I think the other important point that you brought up in, in your your response there was uh, around how this really isn't and shouldn't be a action that is siloed away by one or two individuals or a department, right? There really needs to be a cross-organization education as it pertains to negotiating clinical trial agreements. So what are, Dr. Fox, what are some of the items that sites can look for before they sign a CTA that might not be in their best interest, right? It, it comes across their desk. They see the CTA. What are some of those things in your experience and, and, and your interactions with other sites that you've heard as being some of those some of those uh, items to watch for, right? Uh, things to look out for. Absolutely. And again, just the full disclosure right here, this is not full legal advice. And please vet this through your institutional legal counsel prior to. 
However, as the director of research, I've reviewed many contracts. There's There are some tricks, some trades that you can actually do. You tend to get a voice. You tend to understand the voice of the sponsor or the voice of the CRO as you start to read a few of these contracts. And you have to be very weary with some of these sponsors and CROs because these contracts are actually written almost in a way that's that's subservient. Um, I say that only because you know we say that we're coming together into a mutual agreement. However, you can tell once you've read enough of these when the quote mutual agreement is actually one where you have one party being the CRO or the sponsor actually kind of talking down to the sites. Uh, one rule of thumb that I like to do, just, just to take the temperature of an agreement if I kind of suspect something, is I actually just do keyword searches across the entire legal document. Try to do keyword searches for those umbrella ultimatum words, the words that pretty much lock sites into almost everything and they, it doesn't give them much choice. Words such as all or any or shall or not. If if you do those keyword searches across a number of uh, contracts and you've identified the good contracts from the bad, you're going to actually find that those subservient contracts that are actually talking down to sites have far more of those keyword ultimatum words in them. That's kind of like just a temperature check. Another thing that you might want to consider when you're looking at these documents is try to identify if the CRO or the sponsor is trying to pin the site into doing something that the CRO or sponsor is not willing to do as well. So oftentimes a quote mutual agreement is actually the site or the CRO, the, the sponsor saying, you know, the site shall do this, the site shall not do that. Anything that the site does, the sponsor is not responsible for. These things happen, and they happen in contracts far more than than I'd be willing to admit. But if you are, in fact, going into a mutual agreement, just be sure that the the ground is fair, that you're actually coming in and you're working with a site or a sponsor who's a partner in what you're doing. They're not just telling sites what to do. Uh, so now into the nitty gritty, and this is a lot of a lot of payment terms, um, the majority of the legal document can be reviewed by legal counsel and they can handle a number of the one-way indemnifications and the terms of termination and you will have help with that. But sometimes the payment terms in particular, it, you really have to watch out for those because even sometimes the legal counsel, they don't quite understand the payment terms specific to clinical research. Um, one thing that you might, well, that my site has banned permanently is that of withholding. So that's a whole soapbox, and we've actually talked about that at a number of com conferences, but the purpose for withholding is just not needed anymore in the society with uh, digitized information, with immediate access. Uh, withholding was somewhat archaic to withholding mm -hmm. of data, but now the data is immediate. That just doesn't happen. And unfortunately, for the industry has not caught up with that. There's still almost every single contract that I look at is, is a withholding problem. So another thing to consider when you're looking at a contract that is an absolute no is never let uh, the site or the sponsor or the CRO, never let them lock you into an option to work for free. And when I say that, I mean it sincerely. These contracts are very bad at 
for example, saying that if you don't invoice within X amount of days, you pretty much forfeit the efforts that you just expended. Um, if you are expected to do a ratio for a screen failure, you're pretty much promising that you you are taking on a risk to actually perform services without pay. Those are unacceptable, really, and we as sites, we don't have the resources to do something without funding. We need the sponsor and the CRO to fund us for the efforts that we do. I actually just ran into one contract where they said that uh, the CRO reserves the right not to pay the site at all if the site doesn't enter data. They can halt that. And I actually pushed back and I said, whoa, 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 what, what's going on with this? And, oh, well, you know, they they had a response. We, are, we need to be held accountable. What if the site doesn't do this? And I said, that's fine, but we can go both ways, I guess. You can also say that we as a site don't have to input data if you don't pay us, right? And, whoa, whoa, I, no, I don't know. I don't think the sponsor will approve that. So this is still happening. And the sites and or the, the sorry. The sponsors and the CROs are they they are still making diligent efforts to create this one sided mutual agreement, so to speak, where it's it's kind of setting the sites up for failure in many ways. Dr. Fox, there's a lot of really interesting points in that that I want to emphasize for our audience here. Right. And and I think the key, the, the, the key, but the, the key message that we can take away from what you said there is really focusing on that mutual agreement, the term that that that, that term and what comes out of these contracts to enable that to, to happen. Because even the examples you give are, are again, perfectly good examples of one-sided um, terms or conditions within our clinical trial agreements that are meant to benefit the sponsor and or CRO and really are Quite frankly, um, and I think you'd agree with this, detrimental to the sustainability and the well-being of sites. Things like withholding, um, withholding terms. Uh, I, I consider that to be <laughs> quite archaic um, in in practice uh, because it it, as some sites have described it, is really. Um, a lack of trust of the research site. And if you truly want to be partners with somebody um, and they haven't steered you wrong before, then there should be no reason why we have things like withhold um, to make sure that we get all of our data at the end of the study in our in our contracts. I think that's a perfectly good example of, of what your underlying point again here is, and that is taking the time to recognize and, and understand that these contracts need to be um, <clears throat> protecting of both parties, rightly so, but not at the detriment of of the site. So I think that's a, a very important point. And that's not something that is always apparent, um, not something that's easy. So again, we encourage our sites that are not experienced in this space that are listening here to um, uh, take the time and potentially the expense to seek legal counsel when it comes to um, negotiating these budgets and contracts so that those kinds of things don't happen to you. Dr. Fox, uh, I, I'd like to hit again on this notion of trust that we have with our industry partners. What, is, what does trust mean to you in the context of what we're talking about here today? And how can sponsors and CROs earn their site's trust? That is a great question, Jimmy. And I'm really glad that you asked. Trust is so simple, but at the same time, it must be so persistent. 
in my eyes and from my experience, the sponsors that I've identified as being trustworthy are actually, they're just those that they assure that they will keep their legal obligations to the agree, agreed upon extent. And that's it. it. It's so simple. It's literally, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that's it. And it's just an accumulation of sponsors and CROs doing the right thing over and over and over again until you've developed this relationship of trust where you know that if you sign on the dotted line with this individual, it's going to happen. You are not going to have to worry about trying to expend additional resources to work with this individual. You know that if something goes wrong, this individual is going to be there. They'll be a partner willing to work with you and willing to get the job done. And most importantly, you know that because of the actions, this sponsor or CRO are actually in here to do for the right thing. They're here for the patients. They're here as a partner to the sites to make sure that we can get valid translational research. That in its that's in a nutshell is trust. You just do the right thing and you do what you say you were going to do. And the downstream effect of that, right, is if if this this relationship of trust um, is broken or, you know, one example is any sort of legal ramifications that might come as a result of the, the contract, right, the agreement. Um, but also then it's in everyone's best interest to trust each other um, because it develops further and deeper relationships, as you so eloquently mentioned, Dr. Fox. Um, but if we start to do things that um, fly in the face of that trust and, and break that trust, then the sponsors and CROs simply won't work with that site again. Um, I, I realize that, you know, they can have near and present um, ramifications for the, the efficacy of that clinical trial and the end result. But, um, you know, it's it's I, I want everyone to contextualize that and make sure to keep that in mind, too, that if you know, if we if we don't do what's in the best interest and and what's been agreed to and and build these clauses and these contracts to be based in more of a trusting manner, then the relationship will continue to be strained that we have um, between sponsors and CROs. So I, I, I appreciate your answer, your, your honest and transparent answer there um, when it comes to trust. So Dr. Fox, how do you vet your sponsors and CROs um, to make sure that they're a good fit for your site's needs when it comes to um, executing clinical trials and um, those relationships of trust that you're building. That's, I, I'm glad you asked, Jimmy. And this is the one thing that I'm really proud of. What I can say here is my adventure to start to vet my sponsors and my CROs actually happened right here at SCRS with your Eagle Awards. So I remember your Eagle Awards. I remember the sites coming together and voting for the sponsors. And I remember seeing the sponsors winning. And I remember seeing that and agreeing, yes, I know exactly why these sponsors and CROs are being nominated because of what they're doing. But the the data metrics guy in me said, well, I want to know more. I, I don't want to just nominate someone. I want to understand why they were nominated. I want to understand metrics. And so... I, I worked with some of the industry leaders, I talked with them, and I started to ask myself, why would these sponsors and CROs be nominated for this? What are the site expectations? What are the sites experiencing as a result of this to give them these Eagle Awards? And so 
I actually created a series of metrics that allowed me to look at uh, sponsors and CROs to understand their performance. So as a site, from my perspective to a sponsor or CRO, what are they doing? And so as a result, I created the PACT score. That's P-A-C-T. And it simply stands for Promises, Access, Choice, and Trust. Four very important things that are important for sites to look at, for sites to assess. And most importantly, for sites to really look at whether or not the sponsor or CRO uh, is, is a good business partner to work with. And so as a result, it's almost like a, a credit score or a risk assessment so that we can understand how it will work before we sign on the dotted line. What is, what's the track record, so to speak? And I mean, we know that sponsors and CROs keep a track record on sites. And we know that sites have a number of metrics collected about them for enrollment and inquiry responses and things like that. It's it's only telling that we could do the same from the site level so that we can understand what kind of a partner we'd be working with when we're looking at sites and sponsors and CROs. That's an excellent, I think, takeaway from our session here, Dr. Fox, really, and that is, you know, uh, work to develop almost um, some long-standing KPIs, metrics, whatever you want to call them, on your sponsors and CROs that you work with, right? How many times have they burned you? How many times have they not burned you? Have they done something, you know, positive? And and to your to your point, um, fit your your acronym there and your your metrics that you keep around that. I think that's a really great practice that some of our sites that are on that are that are listening um, to this can take away, right? Don't just um, go at your business without trying to really understand um, how the long-term relationships look with these sponsor and CRO partners. Well, we're, we're nearing the end of our time here, Dr. Fox, but I wanted to ask one last question here. Um, for sites that are bound by CTAs, despite rising costs, um, CTAs and budgets, what advice do you have for them, right? If they're in the middle of this this agreement and are you know potentially bound to it, uh, but but costs continue to rise, how, how do you, uh, how do you help them, right? What can we tell those sites to to try to make this um, a little easier for them? Well, that's that's very tricky, unfortunately, Jimmy. Once you're in a contract, again, we are people of promise. We signed on the dotted line. We have to hold, be honorable to what we did. The one thing I can say is the very first thing you you need to do if you haven't done it yet is create an internal policy and make that internal policy simply say that clinical research trials are not allowed at this site unless they are fully funded. If you make that an internal policy, then the budget itself is no longer about you versus them. It's literally an institutional policy. We must have the resources that we need in order to perform the trial. Now, when you do that, it's not going to be effective right away because you are still locked into some very tricky uh, negotiations, but it will work itself out. And the other thing I can say, and especially after COVID, I have approached sponsors before and I've just told them, hey, with the skyrocketing inflation, it's costing me more to do your trial. I need help. I need help to do it the right way. I need to cover my staff. I want to make sure that your trial is done appropriately and I'm going to need more resources for it. Most sponsors will accept inflation as a renegotiation. 
that will happen, especially with what's going on. I would recommend that if you have the chance, if you're looking at a trial and you're very upside down, I can tell you sponsors have been very open to that, but you can't make it a guarantee. So first of all, set that policy so that all of your future negotiations must be negotiated properly. And second of all, in your contingency, in your contingency methods, uh, be sure to tr don't be afraid to approach sponsors. Sponsors will listen and they really want you to succeed because if you succeed, they succeed. I think that's a really important point. Uh, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Uh, at, at bottom line, at least go back to those sponsors and CROs with I think um, what's important there is appropriate justification and information around that ask as to why you are um, you're approaching them. But I think it's a it's a great point. Uh, a lot of really good and useful tips for our site audience to tease out of what we've talked about here today. And that's definitely one of them. Uh, Dr. Fox, I want to say again, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the insightful information and the tips and the tricks that you shared with our um, our audience here. And uh, I, I know for a fact that many of our audience will be able to take some things back to their, um, their sites and hopefully um, solve some of the problems that they face in this space. So again, thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie, and thank you for having me here. Well, everyone, make sure that you register for our upcoming summits like our Australia-New Zealand Summit being held July 12th and 13th in Melbourne, Australia, and the Global Site Solution Summit being held October 7th through the 9th down in Hollywood, Florida by visiting the summit page on our website, myscrs.org. While you're there, be sure to also check out our other SCRS publications for the entire community in the publications section of that website. We appreciate your participation and listening to today's program and look forward to having you join us for more great content in the future. Thank you all for listening.